Hello, and welcome back to the We Need Therapy podcast. On today's episode, we have another special guest, Caitlin, who shares her experiences living with a neurological condition. And we also discuss the challenges she faced with getting a diagnosis within the public and the private healthcare system. As always, thank you for listening. Please like and leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening to and give us a follow on Instagram and TikTok at We Need Therapy Pod. Enjoy the show. Do you feel with these podcasts where improvisation actors sometimes? Yes, all the time. Like, for example, we've got another guest today. Her name's Caitlin. She likes to go by Kato, so we're going to call her that. Kate Kato, Kato. And <laughs> this is what, maybe the fourth or fifth time I've actually met you? Yeah, about that. And Jordan, probably been, what, two minutes since you've met her? Yeah, and we're going to jump into some really harsh and deep questions now. Oh, yeah, open book. <laughs> so this could be an absolute train wreck. That's fine. Kato, you're a fan of the podcast. I am, yeah. I've, I mean, I've listened to a few of them. I'm not going to say I've listened to many, but... Anything more than 10 to 15 seconds we consider to be a fan of the podcast. So for well, statistical reasons. And well, then, yeah, I'm a fan. I, I really actually was saying earlier to Josh that I enjoyed listening to the podcast episode where you had Erin on and you were talking about feminism. Yes, that, we got a lot of great feedback from that one. Yeah, yeah. it was a pretty spicy one. It yeah. was really, it resonated and it reminded me that I'm actually a feminist. I'd totally forgotten. Yeah, well, we talked about it on the podcast, right? There's a lot of stigma around saying mm. the phrases, for women, I'm a feminist. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, like, you know, I even had a conversation with someone in my life that week about, like, the word around feminism and what was radical feminism. And they were kind of saying, you know, I think radical feminism is when women believe that they have, like, more rights or they not want to be not only equal but greater than men. And I was like, I don't think so. I think it just means, like, they're committed to the cause of feminism. That's what it means to me. But for some reason, that's so radical to some people. It's like... It's crazy. They're just asking to be equal. They're not asking to be better. Yeah, Yet There's I know. just so much discord around... Oh, anyway. anyway. That's the feminine... Yeah, <laughs> don't yeah. don't let can, us men just, tell you like, how we feel about feminism. Yeah, okay. <laughs> let we me can. explain what feminism is to you, <laughs> Kato. <laughs> I'm joking. Before we get into much else, some of our eagle-eyed listeners may have seen that somebody appeared in the newspaper. I've got something in front of me. Now, is this from the West Australian or is it... Uh, is it's the West Australian. It was, it was on Saturday, actually. I was down south in Bunbury and one of my best friend's dad's texted me the picture of the article. Wow. That's the closest person in your life, your best friend's dad. That's how far my reach is, Jordan. My brand is flying. (laughs) Normally it would be like a girlfriend or a best friend, but yep, no, that's all good. So the title of it is called, well, it's it's called Blind Date, but then the, the byline is called, Is It Love or Just Content for Business Analyst Darcy and Occupational Therapist Josh? I don't know how I feel about my title being in the uh, newspaper. Oh, occupational therapist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you worried about some clients? Or oh, no. Some clients have already seen it and, and messaged <laughs> me. Yes. <Uh-oh. laughs> so let's have a look. So Darcy said her little, um, the title of hers is called, I joked that my date didn't have enough red flags. And then on the flip side, your little title was, she's an influencer, but she's really humble. So what do you think, what, what were your thoughts on when it came out? I was a bit nervous about it coming out, actually. I've followed these articles sporadically over the last few years. 
and they always seem to stitch up or try to make it in- entertaining or almost embarrass the guests. Yeah, yeah, you've really cracked the code of journalism. That's great. <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm happy with how the article turned out. Yeah, it was pretty balanced, I, I feel like. Kato, did you read it at all? I haven't read it, no. I will pass it to you later Thank if you want to have a look. Yes. Um, I can sign it for you as well. Yeah. The article, that is. <laughs> Josh, I'm just going to draw your attention to this one sentence in Darcy's review. She said, in terms of attraction, I don't think he was my type. Aww. Well, that sounds like a her issue, not a reflection <laughs> of society. <laughs> but then on the flip side as well, you kind of were uh, – you didn't really answer the question of whether or not you were interested in her. And she then – on the flip side of that, said, um, but I don't think you always know that straight away. So she was willing to give you a go. I think you were open to the idea. So I think you're right. I think it came out quite balanced. I'm happy with how the photos turned out. Uh, She is quite tall and I thought, oh, I'm going to look really short in the photo. No, I think you guys look really, really evenly matched. Well, I was wearing my um, platform docks, so they add an extra three inches to push me over six foot. So that was very strategic on my behalf. (laughs) I knew there was a photo shoot coming, that's why. Do you wear those little, those heel raises that you put in your shoes to make you look taller? No, but if you look at these boots. Oh, Jesus. That's what, three inches that's added on? I'm talking about the boots. uh, Yeah, I was going to say, where are your hands? Are they in your pants? (laughs) I'm pretty sure high heels were initially for men. Really? There you go. Yeah. Don't know where I heard that, but like. You know, well, I don't see at a, me. I see a lot of guys in high heels, but they are, you know, seven foot drag queens. So yeah. I'm guessing you could pick it up as well. Uh, be a drag queen? Absolutely. I might just add an extra job to the uh, already <laughs> very impressive resume that I have. Wait a minute. If you're a drag queen, have you ever thought of a drag name? Because I've got, uh, so I've got one. back in back in the uni days, we used to have like parties and dress ups and whatnot. And one Halloween party, I wore my sister's cheerleading outfit with the <laughs> matching blonde wig, and my name for the night was Josh Ella. That fucking sucks. Are you kidding me, Josh Ella? Ooh. That's like the worst drag name ever. Well, what what drag name would you give me? Um, I probably can't say anything online on air because I guess it would be probably quite racist and would get cancelled, but it'd be some sort of connotation around the Philippines and having a small dick. Um, but my drag name, this is what I'm kind of getting to. Oh, here like, we go. It's, it's usually a two-pronged name that's like got a sexual connotation or a joke on your job. Mine doesn't even do that. I really like Ariana Grande, so I thought maybe like Ariana, but then the size up from Grande, which is Venti. <laughs> So I'd be Ariana Venti. Are you fucking kidding me? That's a great name. That is fucking terrible. I'm actually really okay with this. Yeah. What? Because drag names, it's, it's about puns. It's about euphemism. Well, where's the pun? Where's the euphemism there? Venti. Adriana Venti. Ariana for Ariana Grande. Yeah. And Venti is a size up from Grande at Starbucks. Oh, that is fucking terrible. Are you kidding You're me? You're outnumbered, Josh. You added E-L-L-A on the end of your name. Well, at least people know it's me. Uh, yeah, I don't know what to say. Your name sucks. I mean, Josh Ella sucks. But. Well, considering I, that's not the name that I chose, though, and Why? you've actually put thought into your name and chose that lame drag name. Wait a minute. 100% of the listening audience that not us thinks my drag name is amazing. Fuck me. So where are you going with this? <laughs> I well, think yeah. you should stick to being a physio. And even that's just like Wait, scraping I'm not, at the belt. I'm not going to be a drag queen. Yeah, I'm not with saying. a name like that, No. Oh, wait, I think our listeners should message us on socials. I think you might be outnumbered here. Ariana Venti is a great track name. We should put out a poll and put a bet on. 
Sure. Whether okay. Ariana Grand Venti, Grand Vitara, whatever your name is, <laughs> is decent or not. Well, let's do that. We only have a few followers on TikTok anyway. So. We've got three, so it'll be best of three. Okay. Sounds good. So I actually scored nine out of ten on the blind date. Oh, that's impressive. Which I'm very, very happy with that mark. How much money did you pay her for that? Didn't need to. I just uh, rocked up on the day and... Sure. Flash these pearly whites. <laughs> I thought you were going to flash something else for a minute. Uh, then that would have been a one out of ten. Absolutely. And that's just the length. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, you've signed up for this blind date. Well, I feel like I was strongly encouraged to sign up. Imitation is the best form of flattery. Keep repeating that. And so, I mean, it's not a joke. It's, it's a well-known fact that Jordan tends to dag off me. Did you just say dag off? Yeah, what? dag. What is that? A dag. You know what a dag is? I have no idea. It's that little lump. I'm loving Kato. She's <laughs> reinforcing everything I think and say. It's because she's intimidated by you because you're not approachable. <laughs> Did you listen to the last episode, Kato? Apparently, I'm intimidating and not approachable. She's speechless because she's so terrified of you. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I didn't. <laughs> That's okay. Not many people did listen to that one. So, so anyway, a dag <laughs> is a clump of hair on the backside of a sheep's asshole. Okay. Why are you talking about this? Because that's you. <gasps> oh, okay. That makes You're no basically sense. the wish version of me. Oh, that's an interesting burn. Where did you get that from? <laughs> Amazing. An Instagram reel I once saw. Or is it what I used earlier today <laughs> on you? So anyway, we digress. Let's 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 talk about some meaningful things here. So I know well, I've got a very convoluted relationship with Kato. I know her through my ex neighbor. Yeah, I think you can call him that. Is that convoluted? Well, it's just a, it's a random link. Yeah, I suppose so. I guess she's the But I guess he's just like a friend of yours. She's like your friend's girlfriend. Well, she's more of a friend of mine than I've not seen her partner in. Oh, should we slag him off then? Yeah. No, I'm just joking. Do it. Absolutely. What's his name? Ben. Oh, God. What a boring name. The worst name. It's no, such I'm a kidding. white man name. I actually really like the name Ben. <laughs> and I've always wanted a boyfriend called Ben. So if there's any Bens out there that are, that are free, let me know. Please. Well, how's your relationship with Ben going? Because uh, this guy might swoop in. <laughs> He's got an obsession with Bens. I, I think he would like that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Maybe he's going on a blind date because I'm going on the blind date tomorrow. So just check his calendar in case he's going on the same date. I don't think I have to worry about that because he's already got a date with the my competition. Oh, okay. Ooh. What do you mean your competition? What Footy. Kind of- Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. I thought we were talking about, oh, not another polyamorous person on this podcast. Oh, my God. There's still like a dime a dozen these days. <laughs> Polyamory is so 2022. No, it's not cool anymore. Oh, definitely not. It was I, cool for a bit. And then. I don't think it was cool. I just did it. <laughs> I like to be. I like to be a trendsetter. It became mainstream. I think uh, Abby Chatfield is that kind of where. Oh, oh, is she in a polyamorous relationship? She was. Oh, was she doing it before I was doing it? I feel like that. I that feel like she's only been relevant in the last 12 months. No. No? She's been relevant Where is she a lot from? longer than that. She's from The Bachelor. The Bachelor, oh. and then she had her podcast, um, It's A Lot. Abby Chatfield is the queen of podcasting, and we totally want to get in her good book. So if you're listening to this, Abby, we love you, and we want some <laughs> of your followers. absolutely <laughs> no chance she's listening to this. You know what? I'm mutual friends with one of her friends, so. Oh, cool. Yeah. I will be sending this episode Sliding to into the DMs. Absolutely. She's a total boss lady. Having said that, I've never listened to the podcast. Sorry, Abby. <laughs> but you will tonight. But you will, yeah. Get on to yes. it. Yes. And I love all those things you're promoting, like 
sunscreen and feminine <laughs> products. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kato, tell us about yourself. Who are you? You know, this feels like a job interview. Yeah. I just had one of those. Um, <laughs> tell us about yourself. Well, if you want us to put this podcast out, it's kind of like a job interview. <laughs> do, do a good enough job and we'll uh, put this out for the world to hear. You are so savage today. Let her relax a little bit. And if I, I don't like. do a good enough job, it's fine. You'll just have to skip a week. Yeah. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Um, I am me. I don't know. How do I, I – I'm an addict. Hi. No, I'm not. Well, every now and again. Some people call me that. So you're not from here? I'm not. I'm from far north Queensland. I say Port Douglas. Most people are like, I don't know where that is. So I say Cairns. And then if people still look at me weird, I just go, West Evo and died. And they go, ah, right, cool. Who doesn't know where Cairns is? West. That's crazy. And that? also Port Douglas. Yes. I, yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, many people don't know where it is. I, I get weird. Uh, Mainly from the internationals. I okay. get the weird looks, but... Yeah, um, mm, foreigners. So what brought you over to WA then? An ex. Oh, oh. spicy. Yeah, juicy. Um, uh, yeah, followed. Not followed. Oh, that makes me sound like a stalker. Oh, my gosh. Or just someone on a social account. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Josh has followed a lot of girls home, so it's fine. <laughs> uh, we moved over. I moved over with him and it didn't work out. How long ago was this? Uh, nine years. Oh my gosh, I've been here nine years. Okay. Now. Yeah. Oh, wow. That you. So you've been in Perth for quite a long time, then. Yeah. When people say, "Oh, if you could live anywhere, where would you live?" I'm like, "I'm I'm here. Like, I chose to come mm. here. I love Perth." Yeah. I moved over here nine years ago, and prior to that, was living in Queensland and the Gold Coast, and then prior to that, grew up in Port Douglas, and I don't know. That's all if good. there's much more interesting things about me. So what do you do for a living? Um, I work for the government. I work for WA Health. So it's uh, actually something I'm really passionate about and I could go on forever, but that's not why we're here. But I do work in healthcare. Ah, fellow healthcare worker. We do like them on this show. I've heard. So, Caitlin, there is, there's an interesting history to you that we're going to dive into today. Recently, we've come into contact because you wanted some advice about getting some assistance. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had a bit of a journey, I guess you could say. I have a habit of collecting things and uh, they're diagnoses. I, they're like Pokemon, you know, got to catch them all. <laughs> oh, um, really? <laughs> Jesus. No, Jesus isn't a diagnosis. <laughs> but, uh, over the last nine years, I guess, yeah, I've picked up a few and it has landed me in... I guess a, a place where I'm really happy now and I'm glad that I've ended up how where I've ended up and how I've ended up there but I definitely had some experiences that is one way to put it. Yeah. So and let's talk about your most recent diagnosis. Yeah, in August of last year, uh so about 6 7 months ago, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and it's not something that I didn't see coming. I had a bit of a lead up to it, which isn't uncommon when you get MS. Um, it's a diagnosis that usually does take quite a while for people to get. Uh, but when I got it, it was kind of like a, I was happy just to know what I had and to know that I wasn't crazy. Uh, it wasn't in my head that I had yeah, kind of 
an answer. Mm, it is a, a big journey to, to get basically the, the answer at the end. Now, multiple sclerosis, I don't know if you've ever worked with that population before, Jordan, but the the common fact or the common understanding of multiple sclerosis is that it's a condition, a neurological condition that impacts people who are quite older. Now, you're how old? I'm 29. 29. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say it completely impacts people who are older. The average age for uh, diagnosis, I think, is between 20 and 40. But then what people would imagine are your older population who tend to then have the visible signs of MS. Mm. They don't Mm. really think of the people that are my age where they're not quite at the stage where you can see it and uh, know that the person that you're staying next to in the line of the grocery store has it. Yeah. Kato, can I ask, what was one of the first symptoms that you experienced? Because I know a lot of people often have issues with vision. What tipped me off is that I had something called limit sign. So when I moved my neck, I got a like a shock down my spine. And I thought it was really funny. I thought it was a really cool party trick. And mm. I would laugh with my friends and be like, ah, wherever I look, I just get like a zap. And it wasn't painful for me. I know it is really painful and debilitating for some people. But for me, it was just like a, you know, when you hit your funny bone, it was mm. like that feeling, but going through my spine rather than my elbow. And I... um. It just started happening and it became more frequent and one day I Googled it and, of course, Google is like, cancer, this, that, the other, tumours. And I went, oh, no, there's got to be another answer. And, well, there wasn't. It was MS and it was the first manifestation of that and it developed pretty quickly over three months or so into paresthesia across my back and issues with muscle weakness and stuff like that. So for the listeners out there who might not really know what multiple sclerosis entails, how would you best describe it? See, I have an inherent like medical scientific knowledge background or background knowledge. uh, So it's really hard for me to describe it in layman's terms. But the way I think of it is it's a demyelinating disease of the central nervous system. And so the best way I can probably put it is it's like having scarring within your central nervous system that prevents the nerve signals from getting through and can impact on many different areas of functioning, but also physical sensations and being able to control your body. From a physio point of view, how would you describe what multiple sclerosis entails and its impact on the body? Okay. Yeah, sure. I wasn't ready for that. But um, yeah, I think Kato, what you said was exactly right. Like the myelination is the process of insulating that nerve and, and, and it really helps to speed up the impulses of, yeah, the impulses from the brain down the spinal cord and, and vice versa. So, yeah, when you start to strip away that sheath, yeah, you have problems with transmission and also the speed of the impulse can be greatly affected, can't it? So it's something that has so many various symptoms because it's sensory and motor nerves, so things that you feel and then on the flip side of that trying to control your body in a voluntary way. Now, your experience of MS is only one of quite a couple of diagnoses that you have. Yeah. So in addition to the MS, I've also got rheumatoid arthritis. Um, That's something I was diagnosed with in 2014. And 
it has initially impacted my life quite a lot and then it was controlled and didn't impact it at all. But from that, I've also got Raynaud's phenomenon. It's um, basically like a hypersensitivity to the cold that causes my extremities to constrict the blood vessels. And I've also got ADHD, so a little bit of a neurospicy in there as well. Wow, just mix it all together. I like that, neurospicy. Can I ask, is rhinoids and rheumatoid arthritis, are they both immuno, um, what's the word? Autoimmune. Autoimmune, yeah, are they? Yeah, and so so is MS as yeah, well. Yeah, I was going to say, with the three of them together. Yeah, so you got to think, like, there's kind of, there's a lot of uh, autoimmunity issues going on in my body. There's, I'm definitely intrigued to know kind of where it came from, but that's something I probably won't know for until we have a bit more of a, advance in the medical world. Mm. Is that something that belongs to the field of immunology? Um, I don't quite know. I, for my rheumatoid arthritis, I see a rheumatologist. Yeah. But I mean, there's crossovers of all different specialties in medicine, right? In the same way that my rheumatologist also knows a lot about neurological conditions that are autoimmune. And my neurologist knows about, you know, non-neurology yeah, exactly. Yeah. Other t- other specialities. Yeah. yeah, and so out of the three of them, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, and rhinoids, which one would you say is your biggest priority at the moment? At the moment, it's definitely the multiple sclerosis that has the biggest impact on my life and what I want to kind of get on top of uh, yeah. the most. And then the RA is at the moment a bit of an issue, uh, but that stems from the MS diagnosis and the issues that I have with the MS and it impacts my medications and stuff like that. So they're they're all kind of in, intertwined, but the MS has had the biggest impact across mm-hmm. everything. And what would you say the biggest symptoms that you're experiencing of your MS? Well, if people can't tell so far, definitely cognitive issues, um, word finding, um, just processing in general, um, fatigue. It's... Uh, pretty debilitating sometimes, um, most of the time, to be honest. Uh, the physical manifestations of that as well, that I do have issues with my mobility and my fine motor skills and functioning in that way, but it's not something that I guess the mobility side of things that is such a big issue except for when I'm exercising, my body temperature increases and that actually um, decreases the speed at which the um, signals can go through. I don't know. (laughs) And so the physical signs, like the weakness in the legs and stuff like that, it, it impacts my life in a way that I can deal with it and I can get by but it's very different to pre-diagnosis. And I can't help but think what you and I have discussed before around it almost being an invisible diagnosis where on face value, any person off the street would look at you and think, oh, this is a perfectly fine looking person and, and would not really see the symptoms of the MS in you. Yeah, you're right there. And one of the things that is so jarring to people when they find out that I've got MS and and how much it does impact me um, is because of that invisibility of it. I've actually been off work for the last 10 weeks. I just have not 
kind of been in a place where I would be able to function, do my job properly. Because of the fatigue and the cognitive? The cognitive issues are probably the main uh, factor when it comes to that, um, why I'm not in my position at the moment, but the fatigue also, yeah, absolutely. I have good days, I have bad days, and I can't really predict which are going to be which. So even though I want to be working and I want to go back there, I can't really just wake up and be like, hey, boss, like today's a good day. You know, work doesn't quite work like that. Kato, are you able to explain to us what the progression is of MS and what's your understanding of that? Um, My understanding is that left untreated, the nervous system and the brain just continues to develop lesions. There are four, I think, different types of MS. You've got um, primary progressive, secondary progressive, uh, relapse remitting, and uh, there's another one that's kind of like a once-off. Am I covering that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my understanding as well. And so people with progressive, either secondary or primary, uh, tend to just kind of get worse and there's no period where they don't experience the symptoms of MS. Um, I don't actually know which one I've got. Uh, Oh, really? No, it's not something that my neurologist kind of turns around and went, hey, so it's this type. It's just a let's see how I respond, um, how I go, and that will kind of determine. Mm. um, I guess you need to know because those progressive ones, obviously they're getting worse and the relapsing remitting means that there's periods where the MS is worse and then there's periods where it's kind of scaled back. So Yeah, and when it does, though, scale back, so a pe- periods of remission, it doesn't necessarily ever go back to what it was. So yeah. your baseline for disability kind of increases with, with each relapse. It, so it's progressive in a way that it's always going to kind of get worse and it's never going to just disappear or go back to how it was. But my understanding is that the cognitive issues just kind of tend to continue to build up um, and that in some people the mobility is then affected quite substantially where they need aids for getting around and movement, that type of stuff. However, I do think that there is been a lot of progress made in the space in the last 10 years and so we've had new medications that have been approved and treatments that have basically almost halted the progression of it in people with MS and stopped them from developing the new lesions. However, I know that there was one medication, the one that I'm actually on, um, that was approved for primary progressive MS, but I don't know how, like what the statistics are around that. I just know that it was finally approved and it's shown really, really promising results um, in yeah, preventing it from kind of getting worse. In terms of that build-up of that process to getting the diagnosis, it wasn't a smooth journey, was it? Not at all. From when I first experienced the symptoms to when I got the diagnosis, it was probably about 20 months. And for me, it was a little bit different to other people because I have RA, so I was on medication for my rheumatoid arthritis, another type of monoclonal antibody that I didn't know at the time, but has a potential 
a side effect of causing demyelination. It's a really rare occurrence. I think it's like one in 10 million it happens to. So when I first started to get the symptoms and I went to my doctor and said, hey, this is what's happening. I need to see a neurologist. They were hesitant, actually, to be honest, but allowed me to go see it. I came off the medication of my own accord. I didn't wait for a doctor because it was going to take a ridiculous amount of time to get in and see someone. So I came off that medication and by the time I did see a neurologist five months later, they said, hey, it could have been caused by this medication, but we'll have to wait and see. And so over the course of the next year and a bit, I would get a MRI every four months and we'd have a look at, um, compare the images to the previous one. And there wasn't any progression. So we were thinking, hey, maybe this is an MS. Maybe this is just a side effect of that medication. But then in August, after my most recent MRI at the time, my neurologist said, hey, you've actually developed some new lesions. And so therefore, regardless of whether or not it was potentially induced by that medication that I was on that caused demyelination, either way, you've got MS. There's nowhere to know. That conversation they had around telling you that you've got this diagnosis, something that you had awareness about, you previously studied as a nurse, what was it like hearing those words? I think it was a relief. It, it was a relief to know what it was because I knew that there was something wrong and my journey to actually getting to the neurologist and having my first images looked at was a really long one and I had to advocate a lot for myself because what actually happened was I had an MRI done and the report came back and said everything's fine there's nothing going on with my background I'm um, so I don't I'm not a nurse but I did study nursing for two and a half years before I gave it up and had that knowledge to go no there's something definitely wrong here this is not normal and I over the course of two weeks taught myself how to read MRIs the imaging place that I went to to have it done they had a portal where you could go on and view your own images so I did that and then I went through textbooks I went through Google different kind of like radiology websites and learnt the differences in the image types and kind of just the underlying science behind it and went image by image by image. I think there was about 400 different images and I screenshotted the ones where I was like, this looks not normal. And when I finally got in to see a neurologist through the public system, I said to her, hey, this is what's going on. And she looked at the report and went, oh no, but the report says there's nothing wrong. And I went, the report is wrong. And she went, are you telling me that you are smarter than a, a radiographer? And I went, a radiologist, sorry, because they're the ones who do the report, right? And I went, I'm not saying anything. I'm just asking you to look at these images. Because she wasn't going to look at them. She was just going to take the report for face value for what it was. And what was meant to be, I think, like a 20-minute appointment turned into me not leaving her office for 40 minutes until she oh. finally agreed to look at the images that I pulled up because she said she did, couldn't access them. And I mean, I work in health. I know that that's not the case. Brought them up and went, hey, here, what's this? What's this? And she went, oh, yeah, no, it is. Um, oh, yeah, and you've got lesions there and there's there's some other ones here. And I went, they're scattered everywhere. I, like, how was this missed? 
and that I had to go to that kind of extent to have that looked at and then to have to advocate to her to the point where I wasn't leaving her office. It, yeah, it wasn't an experience that anyone should have to go through. I then went private. Thank goodness I am, you know, in a position to be able to do that. And my private neurologist has been the most amazing person. I can't speak more highly of him. But I shouldn't have had to go through that to begin with. Uh, Not only just having to learn how to read an MRI, like who does that? And then having to push for a doctor in the public system to actually look at the images that I was saying, hey, there's something wrong at. Do you ever pause and think back to how would my life be different if I didn't push or if I left that office like the doctor told me to? It blows my mind. I I agree. I I mean, I think about it all the time. I think about the people who are in a, you know, a completely different circumstance or don't have the agency to be able to advocate for themselves in that way. Like I'm, I'm a very confident person. I'm very opinionated. I've never had an issue with speaking up for myself as much as I'd stumble over my words here and there, like I can get my point out, you know, regardless of, of how I got there. But there are so many people that can't, that don't understand the medical system, that don't have the agency and the ability to advocate for themselves. And that really scares me. Mm, whether it's education, cultural, language, there's so many facts. Like the, the fact that you taught yourself how to read an MRI, I see MRIs quite often through our work and I have no idea what I'm looking at. Yeah, I mean, like I I love medicine. Like I am so passionate about medicine and science and the entire industry. I mean, I I gave up nursing and it's now I've realised a really good thing that I did that, but I still find that stuff so exciting and I will follow innovations in different areas of it because that interests me. But most people wouldn't be able to look at not an MRI but like any medical terminology and and understand it in the way that I have an inherent understanding of it because I went to uni at such a young age and I was 16 when I went to uni. (laughs) forgot to mention that there. So it's like it's inherent. Like it was kind of my formative years where I learnt all this. Mm. And, yeah, it terrifies me. And it's so fascinating because culturally we're not really attuned to challenging doctors when they say, oh, you know, this is – what it is. You take it as gospel. I think it's getting less and less like that these days because I love Zoomers. Like I will, I will say, come out there and say, I love Gen Z. I'm not Gen Z, I'm a millennial, but Gen Z, they are the generation that is demonstrating how to stick up for yourself, how to advocate, how to make sure that you are getting what you deserve, getting what you need. And I think millennials do it well as well to an extent. I mean, look at your grandparents questioning a doctor never would have been done. My parents would never. Yeah, and what are your parents? Are they Both nurses. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) (laughs) But, like, are they Gen X? Are they boomers? Like, what? Oh, I don't know. They're Gen X. Okay. (laughs) You know his parents? I can answer that. Yeah, I know their age. (laughs) Yeah. They're Gen X. Okay. But, Kato, it's it's fascinating what you were able to achieve with your literacy and teaching yourself those skills in in an MRI space or an imaging space. I can see Josh and I are just so impressed by that. Without sounding preachy, what advice would you give to someone else who is in your situation that thinks that they're experiencing something that isn't quite right, but they're not being believed. Do you have any advice or can you reflect on your own journey? 
I'm okay being preachy. Like I will preach about this to like the ends of the earth because of what I've gone through. Like advocate for yourself. There is no one on this planet who is going to be able to advocate for you better than you. Yeah. And for the people that have really good relationships with their parents, with their friends, with the people that around them, if they can have them advocate for them as well, great. That's a great support network that you're able to build. But you you are going to be number one. Like you have to look after number one, no matter what. And if that means questioning a doctor, if that means teaching yourself how to read an image because you know something is wrong, if that means learning everything that you possibly can about that, we've got the internet, we've got resources, we've got so much knowledge available to us. I mean, <laughs> chat GPT, we've, like you can ask any question and get an answer on the internet don't take everything that you read in the internet as gospel, but if you can at least advocate for yourself, start looking and then be willing to back that up, like you, you like you have to. Well, it goes to show the also, the importance of also getting that second or third opinion. If you feel like the, the answer that you got might not be the one that you're feeling in your body. Is that always possible in the public system though? I don't actually know if that is possible in the public system because you can't really choose your doctor. Um, Probably isn't. I don't think it is. Yeah, I think it's only for those people that can afford to go privately and see specialists that can then not shop around but certainly be exposed to multiple. But that that shows you kind of what is wrong with the system, right? Like that if you are not in a position to be able to go private and, and I had to go private to get my diagnosis of... Yes, MS, but also RA. I had to see three doctors before I finally got a specialist who said, yep, you've got RA. You know, for the people that don't have that ability to go private, like what are they going to do? I, I don't have the answer. I think that without getting political on your podcast, I think that, you know, the, what was the budget announcement of tripling the rebate that the doctors get um, for yeah Medicare? Like I think that's a starting point, but the system as a whole, there's – there's so many areas that need to be fixed. And if anybody's got the answer, like, please. Yeah, I I am a big political nerd and I was watching the budget last night. So I I hear what you're saying. Um, but even the the changes that are coming in for Medicare to triple that rebate or access the more The bulk funding, billing, yeah. It's mostly what? for children under 16, isn't it? So your average person being albeit not under 16 and not a child, I don't know if we will see a huge benefit from that. No, but uh, you're right there. But people who do hold healthcare cards as well, and so like your lower socioeconomic uh, yes. representative people um, might have better access to that, I think. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, the current federal government did acknowledge that the um, the Medicare system needed to be revamped and there are changes coming to that. What sort of changes would you like to see? Um. I think without just like throwing the F word in there, like and saying heart funding, like they need to fund healthcare more. I think that the system as a whole needs to change. And my experience working in the public sector has been a lot of the time the government throws money at something and goes, here, fix it. But they're not necessarily like throwing money at the right places. Mm. Actually, something I was talking to somebody about earlier today was that so much of the analysis in the public sector and kind of problem solving isn't done by people in the public sector. It's done by consulting firms. Mm -hmm. I think you need to come to the people that are actually working in the sector 
for the ones who are going to have the right solutions. I can't, you know, say what the right solution is, but I think we're starting to get there. Um, what was it? A, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, oh, actually it's probably a while ago now, the Sustain- Sustainable Health Review came out where there was a whole bunch of recommendations for kind of where we need to see healthcare go. And I think that a lot of them haven't been implemented because of the issue with just throwing the funding in the wrong places. Yeah, and that makes sense. Like I hear what you're saying to say like the people who are on the ground, doctors, nurses, specialists, physios, OTs, whoever you are, they're going to be the ones with the ideas and typically we do see consulting agencies come in Um, and that's probably more a reflection of they have the skills to kind of write the reports and assess but from what you're saying is is totally accurate it's the ones on the ground who have the information do you think that one of the barriers might be that those people who are in um, patient facing jobs uh, there's just not enough staffing for them to even consider like the innovation of health absolutely staffing is a major issue it's an issue you know, across the board at the moment, but especially in healthcare after the pandemic. I mean, we saw mass exodus of healthcare professionals who just couldn't cope with the the stress and the like the workload and burnt out during the pandemic. And now you've got areas, especially in rural WA, that just don't have doctors, don't have nurses. They're like completely reliant on the services that are provided by a central hub in Perth and even getting agency staff members up there is difficult. I think Mm. you're going to have to, if you want to see a change, you're going to have to change something and yeah, sure, it can start with staffing. Well, it comes back to education. It does and I think the, wasn't there recently money kind of thrown at education in the sense of, they subsidise certain degrees mm. more? Is that something that they did? They did that during COVID. Um, there were particular degrees that they would offer for free or a massive subsidised rate. I don't think we're far enough down to see the effects of that. No, I, yeah. And I, I don't know right. if that, I don't actually know what the stats were around how well received that was. Mm, it'll be interesting because when I was doing nursing back in 2010, they kind of did something similar where they subsidised it like crazy. But then we had so many graduate nurses and not enough roles for them to go into. So I, yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether or not they're actually like going to have the roles available to the graduates. Yeah. I I haven't been following what's happening at the moment in terms of which degrees they're subsidising and supporting with Commonwealth supported places, except for last night in the budget, I saw that psychology and mental health, they were supporting those places now in university. I don't know if that means someone graduating with as a psychologist or doing a Bachelor of Psychology and working in mental health. I think that's kind of the area, but for sure, yeah. Well, um, that's needed. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know anyone who doesn't have somebody that they know in therapy. It's, yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Can I just ask, Kato, does that mean that you were going through your process of trying to get a diagnosis during COVID years? Yes, what was that experience like? What was your access to healthcare like during that time? For me, because I was an essential worker, I was out in the community um, quite a lot anyway and was very conscious of the 
area that I was in, I was working in healthcare. So I feel like I had a lot more access to it than other people. And I kind of knew where to go. I knew how to research getting access to that. But in terms of being kind of at the hospitals and stuff like that, it, I didn't I didn't see the impact of COVID in that sense because a lot of my stuff was done private after I had that you know experience with the public system. The access didn't necessarily change for me because even are we allowed to say that we're on the other side of COVID now? I don't yeah. quite. Yeah, yeah, we're on the other side of COVID, and the waiting lists are still ridiculous. To see, I think a private neurologist at the moment you're looking minimum five months. I've heard stories of eight months, nine months wait for mm. a private. For a private, and we're talking about like not just you know any neurologist, but a a decently specialist. Yeah, yeah. A, a specialist that has a decent reputation. I'd hate to see what that would have been like during COVID in the public system. I'm lucky I didn't have to experience that. Mm. Yeah, and I was reading an article as well the other day in The Australian about the wait list, you know, those those specialist wait lists. You need to first to access a GP before then you're waitlisted. So often people are like waiting for those initial GP appointments before they even can get on the wait list. So they can be so much longer than we actually see um, the reported wait times in the media. And plus the cost involved as well. Like you have to pay for a GP appointment, then pay for a specialist, pay for a follow-up. From your experience, how much have you had to fork out? So I actually got into tracking my finances properly in the last 18 months, 12, 18 months. And other than my my bills, my medical expenses were the highest expense that I've got, hands down. How much would you estimate you've spent on your condition and getting your diagnosis? I would say upwards of five grand. Yeah. And that's... In two two years. Yeah. And that's likely to increase as you get older and as your um, condition progresses. Is that right? Well, I hope that the medication that I'm on actually stops the progression of it. Like that's kind of the hope. But what I have found is that my, my expenses have actually decreased recently because I got access to NDIS. Right. Okay. And... Now that we're kind of getting on top of my condition, I'm not needing to go back and see the doctors as often as possible. But now I know what's wrong. Like now we can treat it. Whereas before we didn't know what was wrong. And so that's why there were so many appointments in such a short period of time and why it was so expensive for me having to go through the private system and then having to pay for second opinions and stuff like that. Like that is kind of what was the most um, expensive part of it. And then now I've got access to the NDIS, which... I didn't know that I could get until probably four months ago. Yeah, that's been life-changing. Fantastic that you're on the NDIS scheme now and you're receiving support through that. What would you say, like I, I admire you so much for what you've been through and I, I, when I look at you and think of you, I just think of how strong and amazing and well done for being able to go through everything that you've gone through. But I know it wasn't easy. What kind of supports or who who's supported you through this whole process? I'm really, really lucky that I've got such a supportive partner. Um, he has only kind of been on the scene for the last 12 months, but he has been absolutely integral to just kind of keeping me afloat um, and providing the emotional support that I need to get through this. Um, 
And then I'm also really, really lucky that I've got such a close-knit group of friends because I don't have family over here. No. My, my family are my chosen people and I do have people that I can turn to that would literally drop everything if I say. And when I have said, hey, I need you, and they go, like, right, where like where are we going? What do you need? I don't know where I'd be without them because I, yeah, don't have family over here. And we've talked about this before, the importance of having those social supports and you know, not everyone has that, not everyone has the education that you have. I'm in such an incredible position. Like I, I, I know how privileged I am. I want to stress that. Like I am such in such a privileged position that I have been able to, you know, advocate for myself to have that knowledge, to have the education and then now to have the people around me that I have, I it terrifies me for the people that don't have that. So can I ask about your partner? Obviously I know him and I agree with you. He's an incredibly strong, incredibly resilient person. And knowing his background, he he doesn't know much about health. He doesn't come from a health background. So no. So he just listens to what I have to say to him because I will chat his ear off and he just like kind of looks at me and nods. How has he reacted to this recent diagnosis of yours? He has been so supportive. Like, I think that when we first started dating, uh, which would have been in June last year, I, like, tried to, like, scare him away. And I did. I genuinely was like, this is my burden. This is not for you. Like, you don't have to be along for this ride if things are getting too much. Like, I want you to tell me. But he has been nothing but supportive. Like, he will listen to me talk about my condition. He listens to me whinge. He lets me vent. And previously I've had people in my life, ex-partners who kind of like, they try and problem solve for you, but he's not like that. Ben is the person that will just sit there and listen and say, what do you need from me? And having somebody ask that question was completely unexpected and not run the other way when they find out that I've got MS. He was kind of like, cool. So like, what are we doing? Like, how do we tackle this? And it was, it was like we were tackling it as a team rather than me just on my own with, you know, somebody here along for the ride, which I've done that. Like I've, I've felt that way previously in other relationships and to not have that with him was incredible. Incredible. You started dating what June last year and you got your diagnosis in August. That's three months into this relationship. Yeah, and when we first had our, I think, maybe first or second date, I was I didn't know it was MS, but I knew that I had some form of demyelination going on and said, hey, like, this is what's happening. Like, pretty much, like, giving him the, the keys to run, jump in the getaway car, but he didn't. Like, he stuck around, and what we have to him was, for some reason, worth sticking around and then... You know, I gave him every opportunity to leave because I felt like I needed to. I, I know I didn't. And I know that, you know, he loves me for me and everything that comes with it. But to not have somebody turn around and run, like that was mind boggling for me. It's beautiful. Really? I can't help but think back to something that you said earlier around how much you had to fight that GP to get this diagnosis. I know that was just for your MS diagnosis and there was actually more of a battle trying to get that RA diagnosis. Yeah, well, growing up in Cairns, there isn't really 
a lot of access to specialist healthcare. There are GPs and I did have a GP kind of growing up, but I first started to experience my RA around the ages of like between 10 and 12. When I went to the GP, they ran the testing and when they couldn't find an answer because I'm actually, I have seronegative arthritis, so it doesn't show up in my blood. So they just went, nope, it's, you know, must be growing pains and it, you'll grow out of it. And that type of kind of just constant narrative of it's in my head was present. And I didn't actually get diagnosed with RA until I moved to Perth. I was fighting for it for so long, um, not necessarily for RA, but to know what was wrong with me because I knew something was wrong. And every doctor, every specialist, every physio, every every provider that I went to basically was like, well, we don't know what the answers are. So, you know, sorry. And there isn't a rheumatologist that I could have gone to in Cairns. So I couldn't just kind of like go through the specialties and figure out what I had by going one by one. But when I moved to Perth with the ex that I moved over here with, he was actually studying medicine at the time. And they tell you initially in medicine, don't try and diagnose your friends and family. You're going to think that everyone that you know has something that you've studied, they don't drop it. And he actually came home one day and went, I know what you've got. I know what you've got. It's rheumatoid arthritis. And I went, no, that's not. Like they told you on your first ever day to not diagnose. But we went to a GP like a week later and he said, hey, so I think it might be this. I'm a, I'm a medical student because, of course, they have to tell you. Lawyers are medical students. Like they always have to drop it into the conversation. And physios right? as well. Oh, really? <laughs> and so he said that to the GP, like, could it be this? And the GP went, yeah, no, I think it is. And he went, oh, do you need to get blood tests? And the GP went, no, like it's a diagnostic criteria. It's not actually based on your blood tests and stuff like that. And I met the diagnostic criteria but it took him to come into an appointment with you. Yeah. It took that to get somebody to listen to me and to go, hey, it might actually be that. And when I queried my mum about it kind of like years later, I went, why did they not look at RA? She goes, oh, no, they did. They did the blood test, but you didn't You didn't have it. Like I didn't have the knowledge at the time. My mum didn't have the knowledge at the time to know that, yeah, it's a diagnostic criteria. You know, any person walking up the street wouldn't know that. It took me dating a medical student to find that out, to then get a diagnosis from a GP and then two specialists, one through the public system who said, nope, it's fibromyalgia, and then one through the private system who said, no, I don't think it is. And then it was my current rheumatologist who gave a third opinion who was actually finally able to give me that diagnosis nine years later. It almost feels like the way that you've been portrayed or it's almost like the girl that cried wolf right that's exactly what it is it is the girl who cried wolf and I think that's a really common thing that when women come to doctors with problems it's kind of like overlooked in a way because oh yeah like she's just being a girl but really like when you think about all the things women go through like they go through childbirth I haven't had any kids but I'm very terrified of the thought of that. But like they go through that and then they get told when they're actually kicking up and saying, hey, please, there's something wrong with me, like help. They get told, no, it's just, it's in your head. Like there's a problem there. I've heard so many stories like that as well. Uh-huh. Um, I recently had a friend who went into the ED, uh, woke up one night with really bad pain in his feet 
and couldn't get back to sleep. He was he said it was the worst pain he's ever felt in his life. So he went into the ED at 2.30 in the morning and by 9am when he messaged me, he said, hey, they've just said that I probably have cirrhotic arthritis. Um, this is what happened. I was in the ED all night. And I said, oh, did you see a specialist? And they said, no, the rheumatologist only works during the day. But the ED doctors said that this is what they think it is. And they gave me like all of these medications to start taking. They've given me a referral to the rheumatologist, but I won't see them for another five weeks. But they gave him like all these opioids, all these disease modifying anti-rheumatic drugs that it took me years to actually get. I was told, no, no, only a specialist can can prescribe that. But you've got ED doctors who, you know, they're, they're emergency medicine specialists who then turn around and say, hey, oh, this pain's the worst pain you've ever felt in your life. It must be this. And mind you, my friend has psoriasis, so that, you know, it's potentially that. But a man walks in and says, this is the worst pain of my life. And they go, hey, this might be this. Whereas I spent my entire life saying, hey, there's something wrong with me. I'm in the worst pain possible. And they go, oh, it's growing pains. You'll get over it. It just feels like there's a lot of inequality there. That's a really frustrating experience. And it sounds like it was a really affirming experience for him because from the get-go, he had those doctors in GP saying, yes, we acknowledge this. And yes, we're going to give you medication. And on the flip side, you know, we've heard your story and unfortunately, that wasn't the case for you. And it, what Josh was saying is we, we have heard so many female stories where that's the case. Cato, do you have any explanation or theory why the medical profession or particularly the doctors that you've seen, you know, your symptoms seem to have fallen on deaf ears? I think it's that kind of like patriarchal narrative of like, the woman who cried wolf, but like women are whiny and whingy and women will, I don't want to say make up stories, but uh, women are at home and they're bored and they're this and that and the other and they're just looking for attention. Um, that's the narrative that's like pushed on us our entire lives is that women are just looking for attention. And so I don't necessarily think it's a conscious decision when doctors do that. I think it's just inbuilt into them to go, oh, unconsciously just not going to take that woman's pain as seriously as I would take it from a man because when a man says something, oh, it means things. Mm, I think the, the other narrative to that is women are more emotional, which means they're more dramatic, they say things, whereas men, you know, they don't feel pain, they're tough. And so when a man says they feel pain, oh, there must be something wrong. Exactly. Like It's all about the emotion and the the narrative that women are more... And, and the inherent bias that exists within the medical system because the medical fraternity is even still now, especially in the professions, predominantly white males who are the specialists who are making those big decisions around diagnosis of specialist conditions like MS. So I think, yeah, even though we have a greater representation of male and female and other um, genders coming through the school of medicine, I think it's going to take a while for those people to be in leadership positions. Mm. And so you do get this bias. And I think when you have those, essentially, they're always white male specialists sitting in those fields. When you when you come up to someone that looks very similar to you, I think inherently we are attuned to, to believe what they're saying. When we look at someone who's a different race or a different gender, I think there's like some of that bias kind of seeps in and you get 
you become sceptical, or at least it sounds like they were. That sounds like an explanation it could be. You're spot on. Yeah. I think that was very accurate. Yeah. I, I, it, yeah it just I, doesn't sit well with me. It makes me feel yucky. Mm. I, yeah, I know. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much in the medical world which is sexist. Like the, even the term hysteria comes from like hysterectomy, hysterectomy, sorry, meaning the removal of like the uterus and hysteria being like catastrophizing and this issue of um, like trauma in the mental space. And it's like, it's attached even to the female reproductive organs. You know, in medical textbooks, so I've got like my, still my old textbooks from when I was doing biomed and nursing. And in the anatomy section, um, the reproductive section rather, there are an entire chapter about the male sexual function. And then for women's sexual function, like other than the uterus is does this but when you actually look at the sex organs there's like two pages and I'm like there's something wrong here you know if if I can look at a book and have an entire chapter telling me exactly what happens to get a man to ejaculate versus two pages about the clitoris and the other kind of pathophysiology of an orgasm like why absolutely and women's reproductive health in particular has been under research for many decades and and science research in general has shied away from women's issues because it was run by white men so they not only did they feel not feel comfortable but they didn't have the knowledge to understand even like women were even excluded in scientific studies up until and I can't remember when but it's quite recently because they couldn't be bothered to consider the menstrual cycle and the effects that would have on the research basically and that is across the board and research in general is racist because it often doesn't consider POC and other ethnicities exactly it's basically if you are a white male research a lot of our research from medicine applies to you and if you're anything else then forget it yeah and you know the the interest there is like slowly starting to people are realizing and there's awareness of the fact that we don't have all that information, but the interest still isn't quite there yet, I think, on a systemic scale. Mm. Mm. I agree. It's it's a big cultural shift. It's something that's been ingrained in us for centuries upon centuries and, yeah, it just doesn't sit right with me. It makes me feel very emotionally charged. Mm. Well, I think it is ingrained in the medical culture, but I... I I would challenge that it's within us. I know that, you know, we speak very openly about these issues and we have this amazing plethora of young guests that come on. And I think that the attitudes are shifting. And I think, you know, a lot of people in our in our listenership would identify with that. But it still exists and unfortunately it exists in the people that hold power within that medical space, those specialists and registrars, consultants, et cetera, et cetera. How many female how many females do we see in, in those positions? Anyway, that's my little rant over. Caitlin, thank you for your time today and, and thank you for sharing a very personal, very confronting story. To summarise and to, to finish up, is there anything you'd like to say, particularly noting that our audience are primarily healthcare professionals in terms of advice or information you'd like to share with them? From a perspective of a healthcare professional, I think that it is really important for you to advocate for your patients. 
I know it's drilled into you through uni and, you know, probably in your actual roles at the moment, but there are so many people that can't advocate for themselves and we need you to step up. And what that looks like, like I'll leave that to you, but just advocate for your patients and support them in the same way that you would support your best friend, your mother, your sister, brother, etc. Yeah. I think it's a very powerful message. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me.